Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I'm pleased to be here with you all today. Um, as was mentioned, I'm the lead intelligence planner at the Institute for the Study of War, uh, where we are currently undertaking a course of action development program in order to test possible ways forward um, in the Syrian theater, as well as in Iraq and against um, in order to constrain the Russian challenge globally. So we've got many plates spinning at this time, um, so I'm leading those efforts. Our current focus is actually to understand how these different threats to American national security intersect. Uh, so the presentation I've prepared for you here today is actually to discuss how the anti-ISIS fight is going within the larger regional but geostrategic uh, global situation that the U.S. currently faces, because there's actually a lot more intersection of these challenges than there had been um, even a year ago. Uh, and so I'm here to, to give you that laydown and to forecast out where we see these trends going. Um, in addition to my roles uh, at the Institute for the Study of War, I'm also supporting the Operation Inherent Resolve, the anti-ISIS effort in Iraq and Syria, um, providing support to that military command. Um, as well as other engagement with U.S. military. So that's the not on the website um, context for the anti-ISIS presentation I'm giving you here today. Um, our research institute is fully open source, uh, so we use only non-classified materials in order to develop an intelligence picture. But as was mentioned, we're trained in intelligence tradecraft um, by, among others, Jessica Lewis McFate, who I know has spoken at this uh, conference in the past. So I'm hoping to not speak for terribly long and to make this interactive. Um, I'm going to give you a threat brief as a military intel uh, planner would, but in a way that is unconstrained because I'm, of course, not in government. Um, but please do feel free to interrupt me with any questions uh, or comments as I go. I'm happy um, to divert as needed. I'm here to, to give you all the understanding of the threat picture that you need, um, not simply to speak at you. Um, so I have... A opening salvo that is potentially controversial, but is based on the long course of action um, testing program that we have undertaken at the Institute for the Study of War. We've actually tested something like 20 possible ways forward in Syria and Iraq, um, all of which have failed. Um, the reason why the possible ways forward uh, have failed have largely to do with actually the constraints that the U.S. faces that are imposed by Russia and Iran, and that are imposed by the fact that the U.S. has undertaken a military campaign to defeat ISIS without actually broadening the focus of that campaign to address al-Qaeda, which is resurgent, is much stronger than it had been, actually controls an army inside of Syria, much like ISIS does, but is not on the radar because al-Qaeda is not currently dedicating the majority of its resources to external attacks. It is instead embedding locally. So I'm here to discuss the intersection of those threats with you today. Um, third is a observation that the U.S. priority in the Middle East remains the defeat of ISIS. We've built a global coalition in order to advance that objective. However, even within that global coalition, we are really one of the only actors that prioritizes the defeat of ISIS as our number one interest in the Middle East. Regional states certainly desire the defeat of ISIS, but have competing objectives that they actually prioritize higher. What that means is that regional states and partners against ISIS are actually using the anti-ISIS fight as a vehicle to prepare for the confrontation that comes next. 
One example is the Saudis preparing for the confrontation against Iran, and the Iranians, of course, using the guise of an anti-ISIS fight to pre-position military resources for that next competition. So that's the scope of what I'd like to discuss here with you today. Um, Starting with the ISIS fight, the U.S. has waged a very effective ground campaign by, with, and through local partners in both Syria and Iraq to reclaim terrain from the Islamic State. Um, this campaign has been effective in the way that it was designed to do exactly that, to reclaim terrain. I actually have concluded that we are winning all of these tactical battles to retake terrain. Mosul City is about to fall. Raqqa City most likely will be recaptured this year as well. We are winning all of those battles, but we are actually losing the war because we have misdefined it. We have defined ISIS as a territorial problem that to defeat ISIS, we need to just remove it from terrain to prevent it from holding terrain, infrastructure, uh, cities, when in fact ISIS is actually a manifestation of the alienation of Sunni communities that accelerated when the U.S. withdrew from Iraq in 2011 and accelerated with the Syrian regime's violent crackdown against what was originally a pro-democracy peaceful protest. ISIS is actually a manifestation of the fact that Sunni communities in these countries and increasingly in other failed states in the region and even in some Western countries, Sunni communities don't trust their government to protect them. They have few other options for their security and day-to-day -day lives other than ISIS in their perception. What that means is that ISIS is fundamentally a social problem. That in order to defeat it long-term, we need not only to deny it terrain, but actually to provide the conditions in which that local population begins to trust their government again. We haven't done that because our focus on terrain has, again, led us to do that, to use any partner that is capable of retaking terrain. What we have forgotten in that process is that wars are fought for political objectives. ISIS represents a political objective. It represents Sunni defense. It represents opposition to the brutal Syrian regime and to the Iraqi government, which, after the U.S. withdrew, conducted a very sectarian campaign against the Sunni population marginalizing them, penalizing them, as, as then Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki consolidated power in a post-U.S. space. We haven't provided a political alternative to what ISIS represents. Now, I'm not arguing that the civilian populations that we are legitimately liberating from a tyrannical ISIS rule, I'm not arguing that those civilian populations believe in the ISIS ideology or that they even support the group's tactics or the group's long-term goals. However, those populations don't trust the government either. So we may have removed an ISIS tyrannical rule, but we haven't emplaced any viable alternative. In Syria, the, the governing reality that we are creating in terrain that we have recaptured from ISIS is ruled by a Marxist Kurdish political party that is a complete anathema, actually, to the original goals of the Syrian rebellion. Raqqa City was one of the first provincial capitals to be re recaptured from regime or to be liberated from regime control by the Syrian opposition. It is a core anti-ISIS or anti-Assad rather uh, stronghold that desires a post-Assad Syrian state that is locally governed, democratically, and what we have imposed upon them is actually a relatively authoritarian Kurdish regime. Now. 
this isn't actually a Arab Kurdish issue in terms of the fate of the Sunni population in Syria because the population in Raqqa doesn't have an ethnic issue with the Syrian Kurdish partner that the anti-ISIS um, effort is working with. It's not ethnic, it's political. And our focus on a military line of effort, because we have had an absence of adequate civilian leadership over to support that military effort, um, we're imposing a system of governance that is not actually going to reconcile the population long term. In fact, it is most likely to alienate the population. Um, and I'm happy to get into more details on the Syrian side, if desired. On the Iraqi side, we are working by, with, and through the government of Iraq, but the government of Iraq did not have enough combat power, actually, to reclaim all of the terrain that ISIS retook um, throughout 2014 and into 2015. So what happened is a massive mobilization of Shia fighters, some on behalf of the government and largely willing to work under the authority of the Iraqi prime minister, but many working under the direct command and control of the Iranians. That's a sectarian military force. The anti-ISIS coalition is not working directly in coordination with the Iranians against ISIS, but we're working in tacit understanding that we're both driving towards the same goal. The more primarily Sunni terrain that Iranian-backed forces seize and hold long-term, the greater the perceived legitimacy will be of a resurgent ISIS after ISIS loses Mosul. I emphasize this because, again, the reason why ISIS was originally able to emerge inside of Iraq was a organic Sunni resistance movement against a increasingly authoritarian Shia regime. We haven't changed that condition. In fact, the Iranians now have more penetration into the Iraqi government than they did in 2014. They have more deployed assets on the ground inside of Iraq. They're using Iraqi Shia militias cross theater. They're deploying them into Syria to fight Sunnis there as well. That fundamental condition will continue to give life to the jihadist movement that ISIS represents. Now, it may still be possible to defeat ISIS, the military organization, in its current form. But it will resurge. We defeated them by 2011. It took them three years to recapture Mosul. That's not a very long time. ISIS knows that they will most likely lose probably all of the cities that they currently control because the U.S is waging a very effective air campaign, and the ground campaign is actually winning tactically. So I don't think ISIS's goal is actually to hold on to every piece of terrain. ISIS's goal is to lose Mosul in such a way that next time it's easier to take, and next time they hold it for longer. And the time after that, maybe it's permanent. This is a very long-term war that this population, or that this fighting force is waging. And we haven't actually taken the fuel out of the fire. So we're winning militarily, and that's important. It should be consolidated. But we need to be realistic about whether we have, in fact, set the long-term conditions to change these temporary successes into a long-term victory. The Iranian role against ISIS in the region, the way that it has been able to develop that capacity in both Syria, supporting the Syrian regime, and in Iraq, is a major risk, actually, to America's ability to translate our successes thus far into a long-term outcome against ISIS. The situation is made even worse by the fact that ISIS is actually only one manifestation of this Sunni resistance phenomenon that is happening globally. As I indicated in my first few minutes, Al-Qaeda is the other manifestation of this jihadist movement. 
I actually assess that al-Qaeda is an even more dangerous enemy than ISIS now because al-Qaeda has the same long-term goals, the same ideology, but has pretty much an inverse strategy for achieving those long-term goals as ISIS does. Where ISIS intends to go big, make enemies, and suppress the population first, al-Qaeda does the inverse. They are intentionally staying below the policy radar. They intend to coach populations, to introduce their ideology very, very, very slowly, only after ingratiating themselves by fighting for the population first. In Syria, al-Qaeda has been dramatically successful at this. Al-Qaeda originally deployed from Iraq, actually, a cell into Syria in late 2011 as the Syrian uprising began. They have now been able to build an al-Qaeda army in Syria that, according to open source estimates, may be greater than 10,000 fighters. And I actually think that that's conservative. Al-Qaeda has been successful at doing this because its strategy was to be the tip of the spear of the armed rebellion against the Assad regime, to help the opposition, to provide it training, but also high-end military capabilities like suicide vests and IEDs that the opposition was either unwilling or unable to generate itself, and to be first and foremost a partner against Assad to ensure that the opposition, while technically opposed to the al-Qaeda ideology, because the al-Qaeda ideology does not actually reflect the original values of the Syrian rebellion, which again were democracy, um, freedom, civil rights, these kinds of um, these kinds of values. While the Syrian opposition doesn't actually support the al-Qaeda ideology, al-Qaeda made sure that it was a sufficiently vibrant military partner, that the opposition would defer to later the question of how Syria actually needs, how free Syria would be governed. As a result, al-Qaeda has had all of this time to ingratiate itself within the population. Al-Qaeda prioritizes like doing things like getting Syrian women out of prisons where the Assad regime brutalizes them. Al-Qaeda delivers aid. It does service provision, and not in ISIS's tyrannical way with, um, with uh, religious police and public executions and these kinds of tactics that alienate the population. Al-Qaeda is here to help. That strategy is dangerous because it means that Al-Qaeda represents the same ideology as ISIS, but without the same alienating factor that does make civilians in Mosul flee ISIS, that does make civilians in Raqqa flee uh, ISIS. Al-Qaeda's strategy has progressed so far that Al-Qaeda now implements religious law in its provincial capital in Idlib in northwestern Syria, in that northwestern corner uh, southwest of Aleppo. If Al-Qaeda is implementing religious law, it means that Al-Qaeda has progressed sufficiently in its campaign to educate and transform the local population to ingratiate itself, that it perceives there will be no pushback. When there is pushback, Al-Qaeda takes three steps back, returns to fighting against Assad as the first and foremost objective, and then slowly begins to renegotiate um, the question of the, the form of governance in these areas. So there are burqas in Idlib city. And yet, U.S. national security priorities in the Middle East remain defeating only ISIS. What al-Qaeda is doing is embedding locally in order to ensure that it can bring that support to bear globally in a way that is more sustainable than ISIS's model 
for going big and being so brutal to shock the international community. Al-Qaeda is preparing to inherit the mantle of Syrian rebellion in areas that ISIS currently controls. So the current global jihadist movement is not a competition between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Those two groups have additive effects. And in fact, Al-Qaeda benefits dramatically from ISIS's brutality because it allows Al-Qaeda to deploy recruiters within refugee flows, which again doesn't get covered as much in the press. But Al-Qaeda deploys recruiters into those refugee flows. And countering violent extremism groups in Europe have a very hard time, actually, arguing with the Al-Qaeda recruiters. Not the ISIS recruiters, the Al-Qaeda ones. Because Al-Qaeda gets to say, ISIS is brutal. ISIS is extreme. That's terror. We're not. This isn't terror. This is defense. This is defense of Sunni populations against the brutal Assad regime and the international coalition that has come in on behalf of Assad to include the Russians and the Iranians and in many ways in the perception of the civilian population, the United States. Because we're in Syria fighting ISIS, doing little, if anything, against the Assad regime. So when Al-Qaeda preachers get up in rebel-held areas of Syria and say, the world is against you. The world is okay with you being gassed and barrel-bombed and tortured. But we, Al-Qaeda, we defend you. And our ideology is the only viable path to you being secure in the long term. That message resonates. Now, the caveat is that President Trump's strike against the Syrian regime military base from which the most recent chemical weapons attack occurred that strike did create an opening for the U.S. to repair the image that we are de facto aligned with the Russians and Iranians uh, in Syria, which had been largely true. That was an opportunity because deterring the future use of chemical weapons is important for upholding international norms, but it also went a long way to signal that this U.S. administration may not be as apathetic as the last one to the industrial slaughter of the civilian population, which is primarily Sunni. But that was a long time ago, and the Trump administration hasn't taken additional measures against the Assad regime. So we had a window. I'm not sure we've actually developed a strategy to exploit that window because we remain focused on a ground campaign against ISIS using, again, a Kurdish partner that the rest of Syria, the one thing actually that all of the warring sides inside of Syria can agree on is that they don't like this Kurdish partner that the U.S. is working with. Now, we're working with them because they're effective fighters tactically, which is true. And so for a military that was ordered stop the ISIS advance, this Kurdish army is really the best option that they had at the time. I'm not arguing with, with that strategic decision. But zooming back out, it's not, it's not durable long term. Al-Qaeda is increasingly transforming the opposition and is now folding that opposition under its own leadership. There's no viable alternative. And without a viable alternative, the scale of this threat will continue to grow. And we do have some indication that al-Qaeda has begun to reactivate its global attack campaign from Syria. The U.S. has been conducting some targeted strikes against al-Qaeda external operations planners in Idlib province. It's difficult because, of course, the Russians have air superiority. Well, they have the ability to contest our access to that airspace. So we have to deconflict with them. And it's also difficult because we're conducting strikes against <clears throat> valid threats to the American homeland and American allies emerging from these al-Qaeda uh, training camps for foreign fighters and for bomb makers. But on the ground inside of Syria, 
we're killing the best military partner that the Syrian opposition has. And until or unless we're able to get ourselves out of the trap of this constraint, we're going to continue to fuel the perception that the Sunni community doesn't have a different option. And our tactical success against ISIS and our tactical success disrupting one-off attack plots from al-Qaeda will never translate into long-term uh, outcomes. Jennifer, the, you may be getting to this. Sure. Your, your opinion is pretty bleak. Yes. How do we establish long-term conditions for success? What, what I'm hearing is that one of the conditions that you think that we should consider is overt opposition to the Syrian regime. In other words, entry into the conflict in Syria itself. So could you kind of give us an idea of what these long-term conditions And you may be getting there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, the task that I set out is that we have to define the problem correctly. That's why I'm emphasizing the perception of the local population, because we're not in a counterterrorism war. We're in a counterinsurgency war, but we're bringing a counterterrorism fight. And so I'm arguing that we're losing strategically and that our tactical success retaking terrain is masking a larger failure. Yeah. So if we're in a counterinsurgency war, <clears throat> what's our legal basis for doing that? Because, I mean, we have no, I mean, if you, as soon as, I was sort of going along with the counterterrorism, you could make the pitch for a global war on terror and stuff, but part of what we've discussed in this class is for potentially what are the reasons or the grounds for being able to actually engage Assad? And that's what I hear you saying. But if it's insurgency, that's internal. So what, what I mean, you, you, you're telling a path to go, mm -hmm. but on what basis can we do that? Sure. Well, I'm obviously not a legal expert, so I can't actually comment on that part. So I will leave it to you all, uh, experts. Well, there is none. <laughs> part of the problem. So, but the but the the argument I will make to you. One second. Well, I, humanitarian. Humanitarian intervention. Yes, I, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's where we ought to be going. I, I'm learning, sir. I, I knew that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely, sir. Humanitarian intervention. Uh, but these are not domestic insurgencies, and I guess that is my key point. ISIS and al-Qaeda are waging global insurgencies against the existing state system. That's how al-Qaeda and ISIS define the problem. The problem that the Sunni community faces is that the tyrannical West supports, of course, tyrannical regimes in the Middle East, but that the entire international system has been created to benefit the West, and that Sunni communities will never be safe until that entire system falls. This is a global war. The second thing I will say to you is that the Syrian regime has been sponsoring these groups since, for a very long time, I mean, at least since the Iraq war. So there is a direct causal link here between the global threat that we now face in the Assad regime, which, by the way, has undertaken an intentionally scorched earth policy, targeting moderates and peaceful protesters while letting jihadists out of prison and providing the conditions for the jihadist threat inside of Syria to flourish in order to force the West into a decision. Do you want Assad or do you want terrorists? That's an artificial choice. That has never been the reality inside of Syria. Assad, with Russian and Iranian help, is making that a reality inside of Syria because Assad has calculated that that's his best bet, to hold the international community hostage to a terror threat in order to ensure that the international community is too scared or too resource constrained to do what is necessary against him as well as this huge jihadist threat that he has helped create. I saw another hand. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One, um, what can we do to uh, just 
Sunnis in Iraq are not Persians. And they don't particularly like the Iranians. They do, they're the Sunnis, they're Shias. Sure. They, say, they share, I mean, there is a whole Shia, there is, they do feel that. But it seems to me that we've got a really, and I understand a lot of the things that we did in Iraq didn't necessarily treat the Sunnis that well because we were more afraid of Shia revolt, and a Shia revolt would have been a nasty problem. But it seems like we can do a better job of splitting the Sunni, the Shia in Iraq from, 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 from Iran. Sure. We have not really drew a, a, a wedge there. And the other, the other, the other key, it seems to me, is, is, is Russia. I mean, at some level, I mean, is Russia really willing to go to World War III to, to, to save Assad? <laughs> I mean, that's really, that's really the bottom line is, or is there something Russia wants from us that will get, what will it take to get them to walk, get them to walk away from Assad? If Russia walk away from Assad, we'd be gone a week. Yeah. Sure. So, a couple thoughts on this. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting the obsessions with the port is another interesting issue. But those seem to me to be the two the two issues: is is a is how to get the Iraqi Shias right away from Iran, and how to get Russia some way to come up with something acceptable for Russia to walk away from Assad. Sure. So on the Iranian point, the Obama administration did not make it a priority to contain Iran in the region. And in fact, there appears to have been a deliberate calculus that in order to preserve, to achieve and preserve the nuclear deal, the U.S. would largely turn a blind eye to Iran's expeditionary activities in the Middle East. It's one of the reasons, according to the reports, that the Obama administration didn't actually intervene against the Syrian regime earlier because it would have pissed off Iran and it could have jeopardized the nuclear deal. So the U.S. has never set it as a priority to contain Iran in the region, which is why, which is one of the factors for why we are where we are today. We hadn't set it as a priority. In fact, it was sort of a tacit intended outcome or accepted outcome. And then ISIS emerged, and we developed an anti-ISIS strategy that, that folded all of our other strategic priorities in the region to the, man, to the mission of the anti-ISIS fight. So we said, well, if the Iranians are fighting ISIS, that's our objective right now. We're not going to deal with that issue. And in fact, as I indicated earlier, the Shia mobilization that happened inside of Iraq, which was not primarily Iranian-directed, it ended up being co-opted. Some elements of it ended up being co-opted by Iran. But we needed that Shia mobilization because the Iraqi government failed. Yeah. I mean, it lost Mosul City, and ISIS was on the gates of Baghdad when we intervened. Yeah, they dropped the weapons of Iran. Inside of Syria, the Iranians were never going to let the Assad regime fall because access to Syria is actually existential for the Iranian regime. Among other things, they need Syria in order to get supplies to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, again, the U.S. wasn't willing to do what was necessary against the Assad regime. We were concerned about a jihadist takeover if Assad fell, which was false. That was a false fear in my estimation in 2012. Al-Qaeda had not yet developed an army. That's not that was not the trajectory that the war was on. It is the trajectory now, unfortunately. But we weren't really w willing to do what was necessary in Syria. But the Syrian regime kept failing, even with that Iranian support. So Iran has had to continually increase the scale of its military deployment in inside of Syria in order to keep the Assad regime alive. I'm getting to the Russia point. And then even Iran failed. And Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force leader, had to go to Moscow and request Russian support because the al-Qaeda-led opposition had taken that provincial capital of Idlib city and was approaching the Syrian coast, which is the core Alawite stronghold of the Assad regime. And even the Iranian ground deployments in Syria, Hezbollah's massive deployment uh, with the Iranians was insufficient, actually, to defeat an op or to halt the advances of an opposition 
that had grown increasingly effective as it folded under Al Qaeda's leadership. Now, Well, no, this is actually going great for Iran. They've managed to stir up the Assad regime. They now, an Iranian uh, Badr Corps is one of the largest Iranian proxies inside of Iraq. The head of the Badr Corps organization is now the Ministry of Interior in Iraq. And it's entirely possible that in upcoming elections, the U.S.-backed candidate, which appears to be a body again, the current prime minister, won't win. We have the Badr Corps preparing to govern large elements of Iraq using the resources of the Ministry of Interior, but also the political wing of this Badr organization to dominate the post-ISIS space. Iran is doing very well, but more importantly, Iran now has cultivated a coalition with the Russians, which is durable because it is based on common interests, not actually with respect to the vision for the Middle East, because the, the Russians don't fundamentally care what happens inside of Syria. They don't care at all what happens inside of Iraq. They may have some intent to exploit uh, the oil resource there. Um, but this is, a, this is not a priority theater for core Russian interests. So no, to get to your World War III point, this is not a World War III kind of calculus for Vladimir Putin inside of Syria. This is not the Baltics or Ukraine. But... Syria presents an opportunity, and more importantly, a coalition with the Iranians presents an opportunity for Putin to stress NATO on NATO's southern flank because the U.S. and the Turks are at odds inside of Syria, because the U.S. backed that Kurdish force against ISIS, which is linked to the domestic Kurdish insurgency inside of Turkey. The Russians, and with this coalition with the Iranians, are now trying to co-opt the Turks in order to widen that seam within NATO as part of Russia's global challenge to the NATO alliance and global efforts to constrain the United States. The Russians also now have an air base on the Eastern Mediterranean. They are building out the, the naval base on the Eastern Mediterranean, which is strategic positioning they haven't had. They're exploring possible redundant bases in Libya and Yemen which could provide them the ability to contest our access to some of the world's critical maritime choke points. That strategic positioning that Russia can and will use, not necessarily to, to achieve some kind of objective in the Syrian war or even the wider Middle East, but to achieve their objectives in Europe, in Ukraine, and elsewhere. The Iranians obviously benefit immensely from that coalition. Among other things, they needed the air power that the Russians are providing inside of Syria. And Qasem Soleimani went to Moscow with a shopping list of weapons and other equipment that the Russians appear to be preparing to provide. The Russians have also successfully constrained the United States in some ways by emplacing the air defense capabilities that they have inside of Syria, which are leagues above what the Syrian regime possessed. Now, were we going to do anything inside of Syria anyway? That's a counterfactual. It's anybody's guess. But there is now added layers of defense for the Iranian project inside of Syria that hadn't existed. That's a great condition for Iran. So contrary to some of the wishful thinking and Russian disinformation out there, the Russians are not going to break from the Iranians. They don't care about what happens necessarily to the Syrian regime. They want their military bases. 
But there's no good reason for them to grant the United States any kind of concession inside of Syria because they're fine with the jihadist threat. In fact, they benefit from the jihadist threat. Well, they benefit from instability because less so than it once did, the instability in the Middle East drives up the price of oil, which is their way. That's all they got economically is their oil. So there always has to be instability in driving the price of oil up. Yeah, absolutely. But they're also going around making oil deals with the Kurdistan regional government in northern Iraq with the Syrian regime, with intent to take some of the Syrian regime's um, oil and gas resources, with the Libyans. And so this is a very effective theater for the Iranians to gain strategic positioning, access to resources, and to stress the United States globally in a theater that's relatively low cost for them, because they don't fundamentally care whether the Syrian civil war is resolved. But the American focus on the anti-ISIS effort and our focus on the diplomatic track inside of Syria has made us vulnerable to this Russian manipulation because we desperately want an end to the violence in Western Syria, which is radicalizing the population. We don't want to take military action against Assad, especially now because the Russians are involved. And so we're trying to negotiate an end. But the problem is the Syrian regime has never been willing to negotiate, never once. The, the obstacle to a negotiated settlement is not getting the opposition on board, it's getting the regime on board. All of the conditions that I've just described to you of increased Iranian involvement and then Russian involvement makes the Syrian regime even less likely to negotiate. So the question of whether the regime or whether, I'm sorry, the Russians are willing to trade in Assad for some kind of U.S. deal is irrelevant. A, I don't think the Russians will because they don't need a deal. But B, we've defined down the problem to Assad the man when the opposition's demands inside of Syria are not just Assad the man. The opposition wants all of the political prisoners released. They want the security services uh, restructured and dismantled. They want the heads of the security services that have brutalized the population to go on trial for war crimes. The Russians aren't talking about giving any of those things. Well, ultimately, then, it's not that important to those theaters. And ultimately, then, the only solution is to directly take out Assad and call Russia's bluff. What are they going to do about it? They're really going to go to war? I mean, they go to war with Ukraine, but they're not going to go to war over Right, so the problem that we at ISW are now trying to game through is how actually to proceed. The Assad regime with the Russians and Iranians are terrorizing the population and creating more jihadis, intentionally. That's intentionally what they're doing. So should we allow that regime to continue? No. Can the regime reconquer the rest of Syria? Even with the Russian and Iranian support, they can't. But... It is now the case that jihadists are so strong that if the U.S. went in and did decapitate the Assad regime, which would require some at least mitigations against the Russian uh, capabilities in theater, which is a major undertaking. Um, but even if the U.S. Decapitated, decapitated the regime now, there is a very real risk of jihadists storming Damascus. That wasn't true in 2012. It is true now. So phasing the continued progress against ISIS in the near term is still right because it's the wolf closest to the sled. We have to keep pressure up on that organization. We now know, according to open source reports, that ISIS is developing the capability to conduct a laptop bomb, which has been the, the, the lethal capability that al-Qaeda has been developing in order to pull off another 9-11. Al-Qaeda has tested a laptop bomb in Somalia successfully taking down a plane. And we know that al-Qaeda intends to conduct an attack with that weapon. ISIS now has it. ISIS has that capability with robust networks in Europe, which I'm happy to discuss, 
uh, if there's interest. So we have to keep fighting ISIS. But my concern is that we have to fight ISIS in a way that sets us up to defeat al-Qaeda too, but in a way that sets us up also to get to an end to this war. Because what we're currently doing is setting the conditions for the war after ISIS. Because the Turks are going to continue to wage a ground military campaign against our partner against ISIS, which is what the Turkish president is doing. I mean, he launched a ground invasion of northern Syria in order to fight our partner. So our proxy is at war with the Turkish military, a NATO ally. That's going to continue because he's not going to shift off of that trajectory. And as Erdogan goes to war with our partner, he's using jihadis because he's using the al-Qaeda-aligned jihadis because the international community isn't that concerned about the al-Qaeda threat because al-Qaeda is really good about their al-Qaeda is willing not to use its name because, again, the priority is embedding locally. They don't need the brand notoriety. In fact, they don't want it in the same way that ISIS has it. So the Turkish president is weaponizing what is fundamentally an al-Qaeda-linked opposition to our partner, which means we can't accept the Turkish proposals for what to do about ISIS. We have to find a third way. Now, unfortunately, the scale of that task has only continued to grow larger as we continue with our current strategy. So the Syrian moderate opposition has been decimated in the north. It doesn't exist. The elements that do still exist, the Turks have co-opted and are using against, again, our ground partner. The, the one area of hope is geographically in southern Syria, along the Jordanian border, where there is still a moderate opposition that does still have military strength, that could be consolidated into a ground partner. But the core, the core challenge is still that the U.S. will not be able to consolidate a ground partner from that surviving opposition in southern Syria until or unless we are willing to help that ground partner achieve its goals. Because the U.S. tried to create a ground partner different from the Syrian Kurds that we're using against ISIS. We tried a train and equip program with Syrian Arabs from within the opposition. That program failed because we asked them all to sign a waiver or sign an agreement not to fight Assad, which is the reason that they are fighters in the first place. That's not going to work. So we do have to develop a way to support this population in its rebellion against a completely brutal war criminal regime. But we can't push too hard too fast. We have to recognize the very real risk that al-Qaeda co-ops something that we try to do. We have to proceed deliberately, and we have to, of course, manage the risk of the escalation ladder that is very real. I mean, I don't think that President Putin is willing to go to World War III for the Assad regime. But the Russo-Iranian coalition is a very vibrant coalition. The Iranians are deployed across Syria and Iraq. They're increasingly involved in Yemen. They can hit us in a lot of places, and they will, as soon as we start taking measures against the Assad regime. In fact, they have already started. There's a remote or U.S. military base right here near the Syrian-Iraqi-Jordanian uh, border called Tenef, which you may have heard about in the news. It's a U.S. outpost where we are still doing some low-level training of Syrian opposition fighters that aren't linked to that Kurdish project. The, the pro-regime coalition deployed a convoy out there to get nearby put some artillery units in place, may have actually fired some artillery at the base. And so the U.S. has begun to conduct 
force protection strikes against that regime military force, which is likely led by an Iranian uh, command element, they're pressuring us to see whether President Trump is actually committed to doing anything against the Assad regime or whether that strike against the base from which the chemical weapons attack happened was really a one-off thing. And the Iranians and the Russians are right to test us in that way because it's not at all clear what the American strategy is in Syria or the wider Middle East. The, the Trump administration has largely continued the strategy that it inherited from the Obama administration with a few changes. Some restrictions lifted, some authorities devolved, but it's fundamentally the same strategy. And so while the Trump administration has made statements about containing Iran in the region um, and recognizing Iran as a threat to regional stability, there's no current plan that is understood. So the Iranians are trying to test what they can get away with. Yeah. So let's imagine now that we do somehow challenge the Assad regime, and let's imagine somehow um, that we're successful at removing them from power without Russia getting you know, overly upset. Um, like, what then? Then there's a power vacuum. Then does the United States just continue to retain a presence in the region forevermore, or do you pull out and then let the power vacuum get filled with something else? I mean, it, I, 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 I still don't see a solution, even if we do get sufficient will to move, move against the side. Sure. So I think the, the key, from my perspective, is to avoid creating, actually, a power vacuum, because we kind of know what happens next. Al-Qaeda and or ISIS will move in, or the escalation with the Russo-Iranian coalition will be on the bad scale. So what I'm arguing, actually, is that counter-Assad does not necessarily mean militarily in the first instance. The biggest threat to the Assad regime has always been the existence of a political challenge to his rule that has international legitimacy we can still create that political challenge. Moderate opposition groups do still remain active in the South. We could slow down against ISIS and commit enough resources to leverage that existing political challenge to the Assad regime against ISIS. We could seize Raqqa and bring in the actual Syrian opposition that represents the population we're trying to win. That's not actually a dramatic change in the current strategy, but it would do immense damage to the Assad regime's credibility. Yeah. Jennifer, let me follow up on that last question and, and, and where you've been going as well. And, um, it, it's, as in virtually every setting, the political endgame, the, the, the stable endgame is, is obviously where you have to go at some point, yep. particularly given the other alternatives of, What's, what's in the region. What is the possibility of, of doing exactly what you're saying in terms of creating kind of a, uh, a bifurcated Syria, um, a uh, uh, whatever we call it, whether it's a saying uh, we're, you know, we're, we're heading toward a federal Syria <laughs> or uh, certain federal areas in, um, in, in Iraq. Uh, that we have the genuine democratic oppositions that we are helping, and we provide a growing, hopefully, but let's say southern Syria starting point, in which we provide the um, the uh, 
protection, uh, the, you know, the air, air zone, et cetera, on it and are funding them on the ground. Is it too late uh, in Iraq, for example? Are there no, no longer the, uh, the centrist uh, Sunni uh, uh, tribal elements that uh, outside of uh, ISIL and Al-Qaeda? Uh, is it still feasible in Syria? Uh, what is, if, if obviously the political end game, the stable end game is the critical component. What is it if there is one? Sure, I think the first, the first step is to recognize that we are not going to get a Syria-wide outcome anytime soon. It's just not possible. So that shouldn't be our goal. Trying to negotiate a full end to the war is not relevant because none of the parties that are actually willing to negotiate can guarantee an end to the war. The opposition can't reign in Al-Qaeda. They can't end the war. So we do have to find a way to move forward that in a manner that sets conditions that favors a negotiated end to the war without actually expecting that we can get there in one presidential term. I don't think we can get there in two presidential terms, personally. Because we have to not only create an alternative, but we actually have to no kidding take all that black stuff on the map and the Al-Qaeda stuff that's not on this map, but includes most of Idlib province in the Northwest. So we have a very, very long way to go. And I think the first task is to stop talking about national level outcomes, as you're indicating, because we can't, we can't get there. So we have to be realistic about what we are and are not pursuing in the near term. On the Iraq side, it's a, diff it's a different challenge because there is a central Iraqi government. It is not fully subordinated to the Iranians. It is, there are elements that are co-opted by Iran. So in Iraq, my concern is that we're going to recapture Mosul, agree on a <coughs> remaining coalition troop presence in Iraq to support the Iraqi security forces, and then we're going to leave. And we're going to continue to do CT operations, and we're going to support maybe some additional clearing operations in the two big um, ISIS-held areas remaining, Hoija and Western Anbar, but that we're going to continue to discuss the Iraqi political situation as an Iraqi problem, which is the line that you hear out of the coalition, that, well, it's an Iraqi problem. Now, the U.S. did originally try to achieve some political conditions in Iraq that would address the Sunni grievances that originally gave rise to ISIS, but they all failed because the Iraqi Prime Minister, Abadi, does not have the political capital or the strength, actually, to make those changes. He's resisted at every turn. We do actually have to find a way to enable good intending actors like Abadi to, A, survive politically, but also, B, do what is necessary. But that's not what the current administration is discussing. We're talking about transitioning into a post-conflict environment after we recapture Mosul. But ISIS is not defeated when Mosul is recaptured. In fact, ISIS is actually currently on the offensive in a lot of areas and may, in fact, be gearing up to gain additional terrain in the near term. Jessica Lewis-McFate, who briefed um, this course in the past few years, is actually forecasting that ISIS may make a play for Ramadi again, which is west of Baghdad in the near term.
because ISIS is not defeated as a military organization because its primary strength does not actually come from the terrain that it physically controls, despite the fact that the coalition has defined that as our understanding of its core source of strength. And until or unless we actually understand the enemy that we're fighting, we're going to continue to define the measures of the effectiveness of our campaign incorrectly. We don't know the effect on the enemy that we're having because we're looking for the wrong indicators. And so the enemy is consistently surprising us in how capable he is because we've mistified the problem. We didn't expect Mosul to be this hard. In fact, we even expected to be able to do Mosul and Raqqa simultaneously. We didn't think it would take nearly this amount of time. And we're consistently surprised, and we are consistently increasing the scale of our military involvement, actually, in this ground war, which we wanted to do as hands-off as possible, because the Iraqi security forces can't do it. The scale of the ISIS defense is immense. And so we have to understand that this war is far from over. And even when we take the two parent tumors of uh, Raqqa and Mosul, which, by the way, has always been a concept that I never have been able to understand, because all of that terrain southeast of Raqqa that's black, that black line that extends from southeastern Syria into western Iraq, that's core Sunni heartland. There's a provincial capital city in there, Deir Ezzor, that ISIS contains like 90% of, if not 95% of. There's like a regime military base that's besieged and a neighborhood or two that the regime still controls. That's another capital. And we're still talking about the two cities of Mosul and Raqqa as if defeating that leads to the end of ISIS as a fighting force. It's just simply not true. It has never been true. To say nothing of all of the ISIS presence west of there that the Syrian regime can't clear and also won't, the regime was able to retake Palmyra, but only after the Russians basically destroyed the entire environment with an aerial campaign, and Palmyra was not core terrain for ISIS to defend in the first place. So the Syrian regime, the Syrian regime, by the way, barely took Aleppo. They only retook Aleppo because, again, the Russians bombed it to hell, but also Al-Qaeda decided not to fight for it. In Aleppo, there wasn't city block by city block, house to house fighting the way that there is in Mosul. Al-Qaeda decided to let it fall because letting Aleppo fall was a death blow to a moderate opposition element that had been in Aleppo. And letting Aleppo fall gives Al-Qaeda a token, it gives al-Qaeda another way to legitimize the international jihad that they have transformed the Syrian rebellion into. So what we're going to have in Iraq is going to be ISIS resurgent. We're also going to have al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda has already identified its return to Iraq publicly. Zawahiri, the al-Qaeda leader, is going there because there's this huge vacuum of Sunni defense and Sunni representation that ISIS is filling, but al-Qaeda is going to get in there and compete. Not compete directly with um, ISIS necessarily, but to be in that space. And so I don't think, tragically, this is the last time we'll be retaking Mosul City. On current trajectory, I think we're going to be taking that city again, if not from ISIS, from al-Qaeda. And I'm even more concerned if it's actually al-Qaeda. So there's still, a, mil there's still a, a major military discussion that we need to have about what is necessary, actually, to produce security in Iraq. That military question is linked, of course, to the political uh, question in Baghdad. We have to contain the Iranians in order to make political conditions in Baghdad possible. That may include a military element. Because again, the Iranians have a proxy army in Iraq that's actually cross theater, because it's a proxy army in Syria and 
using uh, the Iraqi forces. That proxy army has a Russian air force now in Syria. The Russians and Iranians and the Syrian regime are now trying to co-opt elements of the Iraqi state to bring the Iraqis into that military coalition. So we now have the chief of staff of the Iraqi security forces, who's a US-backed guy. He's working with us against ISIS. He's meeting with the Syrians. So there's a very real possibility that the Russians actually try to displace us as a security guarantor or a security partner in Iraq. Not because the Russians particularly care about the security of Iraq, but because it's a great opportunity to get us out to cultivate their relationship with the Iranians and to gain additional positioning. Yep. You keep saying we have to find a way. Yes. We have to find a way for the Sunnis and the Shias to get along. 16 years and counting. And what you're projecting is probably another 16 years. So my question to you is, from a large strategic standpoint, mm -hmm. there are those who say, line up the Sunnis and Shias and let them kill each other to their heart's content. What difference does it make? So my question to you is strategically, if the United States said, we've been here 16 years, we've spent trillions of dollars, we've lost thousands of lives, we are where we were 16 years ago, except it's worse, we're gonna withdraw. Strategically, what is the threat to the United States? Well, first and foremost, there's the jihadist threat, which is not contained. ISIS has networks in Europe, but so too has Al-Qaeda. They're using the safe haven in Syria and Iraq to deploy highly trained operatives to include bomb makers into Europe, into the United States if they can pull it off. That threat's not contained. And if we let these wars continue, that threat only grows. Second, is, is that a threat that justifies massive military involvement in the region for years and years and years? Well, look, we, so this is a very valid question. We've gamed this out. We said, okay, what would happen if the United States said, we're going to accept the cost. We're going to accept continued Paris and Brussels and UK attacks. The problem is, there are multiple threats to the international system. And so we're, we can't say that we are going to accept the current level of violence because the trend line is much greater. The Russians, the Iranians, and the jihadists are all trying to tear down the existing international system. So the Europeans can't actually survive this wave if we're not doing something to deny the safe haven from which the jihadists originate that strength. And unless we do something to contain the Russian and Iranian challenge to the existing order, it's only going to continue to grow. Jordan might be next. There are robust networks that are not just ISIS, but also Al-Qaeda inside of Jordan. So we have to be prepared for this entire region to be engulfed. It's entirely possible that we're going to have an inter-Kurdish war that's going to draw in Turkey. I mean, this is, this is, these trend lines are actually global. Nothing about this is contained or is on a trajectory to be contained. And so the scale of the cost that we have to expect is astronomically higher than we typically consider because we, we re-baseline in the, in the national level debate about how bad it is. We could accept the situation as of June 2017. But it's not going to endure. I don't even think it's going to endure until July 2017. 
because that's how rapidly things are deteriorating. Yeah. So this is a really basic question, but remind me what would be, I mean, he's a terrible individual, but remind me what would be so terrible if, let's just say, we look, we think, you know what, things actually were more stable, whether we like it or not, when Assad had firm control. And he's done terrible things, um, but if Russia's currently backing him right now, if it gets to a position where Assad is able to sort of reassert control with the ongoing support of Russia as opposed to America, um, they're expending their money to try and assert the control there. Assad is able to re reclaim control in Syria. I could be completely mistaken. I don't know you know. I don't think Assad has aspirations to expand outwards. I think he'd probably like to consolidate his hold. Uh, Russia's providing that. Why not let that play out? Well, simply because they can't retake the entire country. Militarily, they're not capable of it. But neither can we. I mean, but if you could have sure. a strong government there supported by a power like Russia, and then we say hands off, is that not a better situation than, than this? Sure, but the difference is it may take us 20 years to defeat that jihadist threat. If we give the Assad regime 20 years to continue what it's doing, the jihadist threat will only accelerate. So we might take 20 years to achieve success. They will take 20 years to make this problem bigger. The biggest rallying cry right now for the international jihad is the Assad regime and the Russians and Iranians. Continuing to let them kill their way out of this will only radicalize the global Sunni community, which is what Al-Qaeda and ISIS are after. There's just, you can't, you can't put this back in the box. It's not possible. Who, whoever's, <laughs> whoever's first. Yes. Sure. It's, it's, so if you have to set at rest the minds of people who are doing the jihadist threat, the jihadist threat is not somebody coming out of there and attacking London. It is the mind of somebody in London that's getting agitated by the activities going on with the families there. So a continuing period of another 16 or 20 years could possibly further foment violence. It's actually both. Yes, there are local self-radicalized individuals that are carrying out attacks. And yes, they might be motivated by the war against ISIS. They're also motivated by the fall of Aleppo, I should say the slaughter of Aleppo, by the Russians and Iranians. So we can't forget that. But ISIS is executing a very deliberate, well-resourced, and commanded and controlled attack campaign in Europe. It began in late 2013, before ISIS had even declared the caliphate. ISIS set up an external operations wing and trained operatives that they deployed into Europe to conduct attacks at regular intervals throughout 2014 and early 2015 in the lead up to Paris. These were foreign fighters that came to Syria, received training, received money and supplies and orders, and in some cases bomb making capability were deployed into Europe, created networks, 
and then executed attacks. That's a very deliberate ISIS campaign. ISIS is also using its online presence to not just radicalize individuals and try to get them to conduct attacks, but to organize logistics. Well, I'm not arguing that we should continue to bomb for 20 years. I'm arguing that we should provide an alternative. And that, yes, as you attack ISIS, theoretically, the threat of ISIS attacking us could increase as it mobilizes its population. But not doing anything against ISIS doesn't decrease the threat. It just continues to provide ISIS freedom of action and the ability to generate these attack cells. Yeah. First, I was feeling good this morning. So thank Sorry. You. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. And nothing's largely changed. Yeah. Um, and we've been in Iraq for 16 years. And it, at some point, and I would argue we're past that point, militarily, this is not sustainable. Yeah. So if we think that there is another bigger war coming, and we are continually slowly draining personnel, material, and more importantly, the will to fight, in America and across our allies, then are, are we just shooting ourselves in the foot? Yeah. And so that we don't let, like, and, and I've asked everyone, at some point, when do we say, we're either gonna defeat ourselves now, or we're gonna defeat ourselves, you know, when there's 50,000 more dead Americans and, and Europeans, and our economies have sunk to a point where we're just unable to, to get out of this because we keep thinking we just have to do this and then we'll win. It's like the, 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 the bus to Abilene. I feel like we're on the tank to Abilene <laughs> across the Mideast. And In reverse. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm not looking for another uh, campaign medal into yeah. any, any number of countries, but if we can't pull out and we can't win, and to my limited historical knowledge, no foreign military or foreign country has really successfully brought peace to the Middle East um, since perhaps Genghis Khan. Um, there's just, so why can we do it now when no one else has been able to do it? Or are we just, are we stuck in this position that, well, we can't say that we can't do it, so let's just keep on doing it and let future generations bleed it out in, in military power and willpower, and then we'll deal with it then when we don't have the resources to... Sure. Like, like what are we doing, I guess, sure. fundamentally? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the... Yeah. So the biggest problem, from my perspective, is that we are militarily engaged in these places and losing. So it's one thing to be on a path to success that takes longer than we expected. We're not on a path to success and we're actually making all of these trend lines worse. In Syria and Iraq, we are doing more harm than good. So I think the first question is how do we actually start moving in the right direction, possibly even with the, the involvement on our current scale? We can, it's within our power. We have overly constrained ourselves for arbitrary reasons. There was no real reason we had to partner with the Syrian Kurdish forces against ISIS and then build them into an army. 
we wanted to stop, we wanted to halt the advance on the border, we could have done that and then transitioned into a new phase. We have made a series of very bad strategic decisions. So what we first need to fix is the strategic decision making and our understanding of the problem. And then we need to consider how, how much of it we can solve and what kind of time frame using what kind of resources and what national will. But my concern is first that we have to properly define the problem. We have to be based in reality about what we actually face here before we can start to have any kind of well-reasoned argument about how many troops in Afghanistan, for example, or in Syria or Iraq. But we keep jumping to troops. And as a result, we keep defining down the scale of the problem to something we think we can handle. So I'm not, I'm not arguing we even can solve the entire Middle East crisis that we currently face in a generation. But I'm saying we are currently making it worse. We currently have impaled ourselves on this problem. And so the first step is to, the first thing we need to do is take a step back, figure out how to be part of the solution, and then have a conversation about how much of this we try to solve and what kind of time frame. Yeah. it depends on what kind of fighting capacity you're looking for. I'm not saying we should take the FSA and go storm Damascus, because I don't even think that would be productive at this stage. I'm saying we need to stop the bleeding. I'm saying that the Syrian opposition is being transformed into a global insurgent organization on behalf of Al-Qaeda, and we've done nothing really to slow that. But the one place where we could start to slow that trend is in southern Syria. We could reinforce that moderate success and prevent further deterioration. We could start to take measures to slow down the Russo-Iranian coalition. We could block them from going out into southeastern Syria and possibly deploying additional surface-to-air capabilities out there. We could stop the bleeding in order to buy ourselves some time and space to rethink. But we're not currently doing that. And that's, I think, the imperative in the near term. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, I mean, obviously Syria, we're not going to touch anytime soon, but I mean, it seems to me that we have to take steps, we have to take steps to insulate its effect upon us. I mean, for example, you describe ISIS's operations in Europe. When, that, when the refugees flow started, people said ISIS was going to put fighters in there, and all right-thinking people said that wasn't going to happen. Oh my God, it was, that couldn't happen. Of course it could, that's exactly what happened. And at some point, we have to look at the refugee flow, why are we accepting any refugees in Europe or in the United States? And two, within the radicalization of our own Muslim communities, like at some point, our own Muslim communities have to decide what are they going to do? 
because we can't, I mean, uh, in the end, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the individual communities that have to stop their radicalization within this country because their only way to hurt us is through reaching out, through, through making it into a world jihad. And they're not gonna build a missile, they're not gonna come and invade us with, a, with, with, with an army. They can only hurt us by, by infiltrating into our societies. And that really, to me, is the key, because you're not gonna fix Syria. All you can really do is insulate and protect upon us. Sure, so the first point I would make is that many of the attacks occurring in Europe are actually not from migrant flows within the past few years, but rather second generation immigrants. So that population is already there. That population is aggrieved because, again, it's not receiving the treatment that it needs to receive. Now, with respect to the new refugee population, hold on, I'll, I'll get there. With respect to the new refugee population, what we're discussing is a from Syria, a element of the Syrian population that rebelled against the Assad regime, wanted democracy, chose not to stay in Syria when the war became brutal and ISIS and Al-Qaeda began to dominate the opposition. We're going to take that population and we're going to say, you have no alternative. You can't come here. We're not going to protect you from the barrel bombs. We're not going to protect you from the chemical weapons. And we're not even going to let you in here. And we think that that's going to decrease the jihadist recruitment from that population? Absolutely not. So yes, it's a burden. And yes, there's a huge intelligence and security requirement that comes along with it. I would argue to you, we're already multiple years down the road in that. So that is out of the box as well. But it also won't stop the pro The problem is that the Sunni, pop these populations don't have an alternative. If we continue to take the alternative of flight, of escape, off the table, this is only going to get worse. But again, if they're not, th if they're not there, if they're not here and they're there, that's the question of what's their ability to reach out and touch? Sure, but what, what happens to that second generation immigrant community that sees what's happening to the migrants? Well, again, it's their choice. Do they want to join that side or do they want to be part of our society? I mean, are we going to let that second generation immigration, that second generation immigration community dictate our world strategy? And because of them, we're going to send 20,000 Americans to die over there and spend a couple more trillion dollars. Look, the fundamental that's, argument I mean, that, that... That's the question. At that point, isn't the problem with them, not us? No, the problem is with us. The problem, this is an ethical problem. We are allowing these communities to be slaughtered and to live in inhumane conditions. And the jihadist threat that we now face is a natural outgrowth of that. Al-Qaeda claims moral high ground in Syria, and they have it. But Hold on, just, there's, there's a question here. Just one intervention for a moment. Uh, Jennifer, this absolutely superb threat assessment. Uh, let me just say a couple of points. One, I, I think it is wrong to believe that Jennifer has, has indicated something that's an enormous, serious, ongoing, sustained threat. It is complete mythology to believe that somehow we can turn our back to this and have no policy, come home, and somehow everything is going to take care of itself. That's not true. There are a whole variety of other costs that we were going to pay, and I think part of that relates to the Russian equation, and it, part of it relates to uh, uh, an expansion of the jihadist movement and a variety of other issues. This is a real problem, and it's here to stay. I think the other thing is we should not despair uh, of assuming that there are no options solely because we've had a series of very bad strategic choices in the past. We've had that. 
We are in a mess now. It's much worse than it was. It's getting worse all the time. We need good policy. But the core of that is we've got to start with a political understanding of where you go. You've got to be heading towards some kind of stable political setting that's doable, that's acceptable, that the U.S. is able to support and, and, and move forward. So I'm sorry, Jennifer. No. I like what you're doing. I think you're doing an enormous Jennifer, <coughs> Jennifer we're down to the last 15 minutes. Yes. So if you have recommendations for the way ahead, this is probably the <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Solve, solve the problem in 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. uh, sure. So we have put out, um, I know there are more questions, so I'll give my bottom line um, way forward recommendation and we can get to the questions. Um, look, we need to stop. First, I'm going to say, I'm going to emphasize that we need to stop being part of the problem and get out of our own way. We need to stop opting for near-term and nearsighted solutions like, frankly, trying to block the refugee flow without a long-term goal for how actually to change the conditions. So what we need to do proactively, I think, is again, to shore up that southern opposition, make sure we don't have a jihadist threat on Israel's borders and Jordan's borders. Al-Qaeda is already down there, and obviously there's a black spot on that map that we do need to clear. So that's a near-term goal that I would set that would is modest, actually, and would set conditions for long-term success. Second, I do actually think that we should get out, and we have recommended that the U.S. deploy military force to the Syrian-Iraqi border and start to clear ISIS there in order to be present within the Sunni community, not with a Kurdish partner that alienates that Sunni community, in order to be present, in order to actually begin to recruit and to scale up our efforts to build a political alternative to ISIS that is not Marxist Kurdistan. Now, that's an increased military deployment that we have recommended to seize and secure a safe zone in that terrain and to expand anti-ISIS clearing operations, possibly in both directions into Iraq, but most pressingly up along the Euphrates River Valley northwest towards Raqqa because it's in that stretch of terrain, actually, that ISIS is currently planning and conducting its external attack operations after having relocated from Mosul and Raqqa because, again, our terrain-based war has just led us to chase this attack cell around the battlefield, but we, are, we move much slower than they do, and so that attack cell is now there. Our Kurdish partner can't get out there and contest that terrain, but we, the United States of America, and the anti-ISIS coalition certainly can. That would be a major step that would set conditions and could deny the pro-regime coalition access to that strategic terrain and positioning for cross-border Syrian-Iraqi integration of the Russo-Iranian coalition and the proxy network that they have developed. Blocking that build-out would be a major strategic uh, victory in terms of setting conditions. So that's our recommended near-term way forward. It's only a step. But this battlefield is so complex and the situation changes so rapidly that we have made the argument that the U.S. really can't plan beyond a phase or two. And we have to continue to develop a strategy as we go to set conditions in our favor and to achieve freedom of action. The other thing that that operation would help us do is extricate ourselves from our proxy war with our NATO ally, Turkey, in the north, uh, which should also be a near-term objective, because Erdogan is only doubling down the longer we stay on that current path. So that's my recommendation. Jennifer, let me yep. press one other thing on that as well. Thank you. That's very, very, very helpful and very specific. What, what do we do also to try to stabilize politically Iraq war and to... Uh, uh, and to remove the Iranian influence and to, um, and to bring Sunni um, uh, fairness, et cetera, back into the, 
setting to politically undermine uh, uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda. Uh, in it. How, what what do we do? What's what's the the Iraqi political part of all this? Sure. So that's a good question. I will admit to you that I am not an Iraqi political expert. So the interdynamics of the upcoming election, I'm not prepared to speak to you about today. But what I do know is that we have to set it as an objective to contain the Iranians. We have to make sure that the Russians don't enter the Iraqi theater more than they already have, which is to conduct oil deals with the Kurdistan regional government. They've offered election observers for the upcoming Kurdish referendum, which will be a disaster um, for our ability to secure Iraq and reach a political stability outcome. Um, and the Russians have some oil deals with the Iraqi government as well. So we need to, again, we need to stem the bleed. The most immediate requirements are to stem the bleeding. We need to develop a plan and resource it actually to rebuild Iraq. The, the U.S. administration is talking about stabilization efforts and trying to acquire international support for it, but it's not at all clear to me what the plan is to rebuild. And actually, it seems like the, the Trump administration is largely treating this again as an Iraqi problem. Does if we half of your uh, Senate, this is a sovereign country, actually. Yeah. And the Iranians have penetrated it, which we should deal with, but it's a sovereign country. Well, but the Iraqis, they don't have the capability, and that Iranian penetration is a big problem. Now, I need to emphasize that the reason we're here talking about rebuilding Iraq again is because the U.S. made terrible strategic decisions. We defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq, oh, and we rebuilt that country with the Iraqis and the international community. We then let it go to hell again. And we ignored all the warning indicators that it was going to hell. And we didn't do anything until it was too late. And then even then, we did the minimum amount possible. And we opted for a strategy that destroyed all this terrain. So we have created this mess. No, ultimately, the Iraqis let it go to hell. We've been there for eight years. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not absolving the Iraqis. I'm not absolving the Iraqis for their involvement in the quagmire that so we currently face. All I'm arguing, all I'm saying yeah. is I am interested in a strategy that will succeed. <laughs> and while it may be comforting to say the Ira- this is an Iraqi problem, it won't work. Well, we well, will end up with another Mosul, and it'll be al-Qaeda next time, and it'll be worse. Persuade the American public. Like, I, I'm hearing sure. what you're saying now, but we're talking at these quintillions. I just wanted to let her know you're Canadian. That's so how do I convince the Canadian public? That's true. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm on the outside looking in. But how, how are, I mean, obviously to do this, if it's long-term strategy and rebuilding here and rebuilding there and going in there, I mean, you're going to need to get a groundswell of support here or, as Matt was saying, I mean, eventually the support's going to yeah. fall away and it's going to go. So, how, I mean, you're focused there, but are you doing anything with your agency focusing back here as well as to how we can start, you can start to mobilize the people to support this never-ending, well, ending, but long-term war. Yeah, so the first thing we're doing is trying to help educate American policymakers, coalition policymakers, but also the American public about the, the reality of the situation within which we find ourselves. We're hoping to offer a neutral, because we're nonpartisan, source of information about the reality of this conflict and how the U.S. is doing 
and the coalition is doing against this problem. I do think educating people is an important step. I don't think that there has been enough public discussion at all about Afghanistan, because if you ask my hometown, rural Minnesota, what the problem is in Afghanistan, they don't know. They're pissed that we've been there for as long as we've been there, and they're pissed that they keep deploying there, but there's no discussion on the national level dialogue about what went wrong. So we do have to start there, and ISW is humbly hoping uh, to play a role in that. But second, look, will the American public support doing what is necessary in Iraq and Syria? I don't know. They need to know that we are losing and that we're doing more harm than good. Um, and what I do know is that we've had an American president for eight years telling the American public that we screwed up in Iraq, we should never be in the Middle East, it's not in America's interest, we have no business doing that, it would be asinine to go in there, and all sorts of things. That, that has been what the commander-in-chief has been telling the American public until now. So I don't know. I don't know what would happen if we actually started to have a rational discussion about where we are and the requirements to get where we're going. But we do need to start there. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm stealing uh, Jennifer's thunder because I'm your next speaker, but because she said that she's not an Iraq expert, I can claim to be an Great. Iraq expert. But again, I'm going to throw this out and will not respond to it because she gets her time. But I want to uh, give you something to think about on your coffee break. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll answer your question. Uh, right now, the American people are paying a hell of a lot less for gasoline at the pump than they were six years ago. There are two reasons for that. One of them is Iraq is pumping five million barrels of oil a day on a good day. Uh, the Iraqis, not the Americans, built that, but the Americans gave them the environment, the security environment. They encouraged them, and this is very rare in the Middle East, to bring in international oil companies, Chevron, Exxon, uh, Shell, the Chinese national company, Gazprom, Rosneft, you name it. Uh, BP, they're in there. And that is an example of what you can do. I wish I had six more, I don't. We'll get into that later. But I did want to intervene right now and say, it isn't all black, it isn't all wrong. You can do good things without charging the American people and to the benefit of both the people in the region and the American people. We'll talk about that later. So say we all, thank you. Final questions, yeah. Just analogously as I've come across this, I think you make an excellent case. It's like you're a scientist analogously talking about global warming. Mm. People don't want to listen to that evidence carefully because of the short-term sacrifices and so on. But it's very clear to me that mm. it's happening. We have to start doing stuff. We're gonna, the problem won't just go away. Yeah. I think you're making a wonderful case, a very intelligent case. This is a problem that won't go away. We have to figure out what to do intelligently. And there will be sacrifices yeah. for something on this scale, of course lots of big sacrifices, but it's going to get worse. Yeah. The consequence of not addressing it intelligently and with our resources and sacrifice is going to be worth it. It will be much more sustainable. Absolutely. And, and discussing the consequences and the cost of not addressing the problem like this is what isn't adequately done in the international or in the national level debate, from my opinion. I, I, in it, so I'm hoping to help play a role in that. Right. Final questions? Yeah. Hmm. That you have to think long term, you have to think strategically, and the idea that you can actually win this type of war. Um, and I think lowering the expectations of a lot of decision making in this space, I call it like that ice skate syndrome. Hmm. You have a really bad experience, and then you don't want to have suits on the ground, and you don't yeah. want to get involved again because you're just battered by process, and that leads to a lack of good decision making, both by policymakers and by the public. So the 
but they just don't want to have more what they already have without thinking about how it could be worse. So I think it is where like the population right now kind of understands that you can actually, not only there's a feeling you can win, which in a way is very depressing as an optimist and a person who cares about democracy, but it's kind of helpful in the strategic sense because it lowers expectation that you can actually win and the win could be categorized as just managing you know, the terrorist organization so you don't have incoming missiles for two or three years, well that's a win. And now people wouldn't perceive it as a win, but if you have two or three years of quiet or maybe you know, 60% less terror attacks in a given year, that's more than you would have had if you didn't engage in your politics. But in the discussion, I didn't hear much about Israel in this context. What is your perspective about what Israel should be doing or could be doing in this space? I have a lot of kids who sit in my living room like regularly and they talk to me, they say, listen, you taught us never again. You taught us the Holocaust is something that should never happen. We have people dying on our border. And like, what is the government doing to help if they're not? And it's very, and then I went to chat with everyone in government to try to give them answers. Yeah. And didn't find like really compelling answers of I mean, what we could do or could be doing more. Do you have a sense of that? Sure. So I would actually like to take any other final questions, then I'll answer them all together if that's okay. Any? Okay, never mind. I guess it's just you. So I think um, actually the. Israeli government has, in, from my opinion, managed this pretty well so far. The Israelis are providing medical support to wounded civilians and actually opposition fighters on the Golan Heights border, are actually allowing aid into those areas, and establishing local relationships with these local communities to help those communities defend themselves and resist against uh, jihadist influence and penetration. That model has actually been relatively successful. Um, and so I actually think that the Israelis have a lot to teach the United States about how to be patient, have a long-term strategic outlook, and take the near-term steps that don't immediately result in flashy victories or campaign slogans, but actually create the environment for long-term success. So I think thus far, uh, Israel has managed the situation specifically on, on the Golan Heights uh, quite well. Um, so that's the offer. Okay. Great. Well, thank you all so much. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you today.